90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. Yeah, surviving. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're doing the same here. Of course, you know, during laundry day, during the middle of laundry day, our dryer quit. Oh, well, yeah. It's tired, uh, like me. <laughs> yep, so I am, I am currently sitting by the dryer tub and other disassembled parts of the dryer. <laughs> Did you find it a small animal living in there yet, or...? Uh, nope. Open heating element. Oh, okay. So. Gotcha. $30 yeah. on Amazon and it'll be here tomorrow. Oh, And excellent. then I get to try to put it back together. That's always fun. Um, yeah, our circuit board fried and it was more expensive to deal with that than just buying a new dryer, so. Ooh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so now we have a dryer that connects to the internet and I refuse to do that because why would I ever need to have my dryer connected to the internet? The internet of clothes. Uh, when it I mean, shrinks your clothes, it can order replacements. It's not going to fold them for me, so... <laughs> like, that's the only thing I need a dryer to do. But, yeah, I agree. Uh, also, I had kids to do that, so... <laughs> that's not true. My son is terrible at folding clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. It's been a relatively quiet, knock-on-wood week around here, so... Hopefully that continues, but I doubt it, considering we've got a, a fro-pa coming. Yeah, you know, we had some snow a couple weeks ago, and now we've got this frontal passage that's going to happen and bring severe weather, followed by sleet and snow. Oh, those are always my favorites. I have so many saved pictures of the warning maps, right, that have a tornado in, in the bottom right and a blizzard warning in the upper left. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Like, those are always really exciting. I don't think this one's going to be that exciting, especially not for for me, but maybe we'll cancel school. We canceled school two weeks ago, so I don't know. Yeah. It also seems really cruel because school isn't getting canceled anymore. It's just going online. Yeah, I think snow days are done. It's so mean, right? So mean. Like, we gave our students a snow day. Like, no, no, have fun. Yeah, but I digress into weather as always. <laughs> well, and, you know, I'm hoping that the weather stays decent because Friday is when we're getting our new uh, CNC coming into the shop. Oh, goodness. Okay, yeah. I think you'll be okay, right? It's supposed to go right back up to the 60s or something. It's supposed to. We were doing some rearranging today because it was kind of the last nice day with the, to have the doors open, and uh, it's going to get real tight. are you gonna have to like relegate any smaller equipment to like a shed out back or something (laughs) we talked about buying a uh cargo container from like a cargo ship wow really Mm mm-hmm yeah yep uh to park like the forklift and stuff in (gasps) oh poor poor little guy (laughs) yeah this well so you know our big cnc mill if it's a haas mini mill Mm mm-hmm this is between two and three times the size of that. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, we're losing. We're giving up on being able to drive the forklift in the building after this. And uh-huh. when we do move buildings, it's going to be a very delicate operation of which pieces of equipment have to come out first so you can get a forklift to the others. Uh, I mean, it was going to be that anyway. Let's not kid ourselves. 
But it is very, I don't know how many thousand pounds of equipment we have in there now, but a lot. That is exciting. That's great. When we left Colorado uh, for Arkansas, all of our personal effects and all of the business equipment together weighed about 11,000 pounds. And that's Mm -hmm. about what this machine weighs by itself. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, and that's what you'll have to sell if anything happens to it. So. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, that's um this is an exciting week for no excitement then. Let's let's go with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I thought it would be fun when we were discussing what we might want to talk about. There was a a semi-current event that we didn't talk about when it happened because yeah. we were both I think we were actually a little bit ahead at that point because we were both crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is the Tonga eruption, tsunami, blast wave, all the fun stuff that happened. Yeah, seems like that should have been something we talked about right away. But also, not a lot of info came out right away when it happened either. So, you know. Yeah, and I'm glad we waited because now we we do know a lot more and we can mm-hmm. talk a little more intelligently about this mm-hmm. uh, because it is a, a big deal. Yes. Um, I had a lot of questions about this in general, and really I didn't follow it so much except for the fact that I watched that video of that atmospheric wave over and over again, which we'll get to. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. Um, so this is in a pretty seismically active, volcanically active area anyway. So not like super surprising that this happened, but I mean, the extent of it was pretty surprising. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the timing, it couldn't be more movie-like. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> this is a this, this is a pretty you know Tonga's very active uh, New Zealand uh, you've got the Southern Pacific you've got a subduction zone here New Zealand Geological Survey uh, monitors this along with a lot of other folks mm-hmm. and in December so late December right before Christmas the eruption began and this particular little island in this string of volcanic uninhabited islands is called Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai. Yes. <laughs> so those was... are the two little islands here. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's now not two islands, right? <laughs> right. So uh, the... In early December, we had this initial start of the eruption. There's some exciting things happening. Volcanologists are watching. And uh, there's a volcanic ash advisory issued from the VAC, the Volcanic Ash Advisory Center in Wellington. And that's basically for airlines saying, airplanes, you shouldn't go ingest this stuff. Avoid this area. I was real excited that there was a volcanic ash advisory center. Right. <laughs> like, that seems very, very specific. <laughs> but needed, so... so. <laughs> yeah. And so that initial eruption just continued on for about a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they noted that a few days later on satellite imagery, oh, the island's a little bigger. 
Mm-hmm. So we erupted some some nice new crust there. Yeah. Uh, then in January on the fourteenth, there was another large eruption, and that sent some ash clouds high into the atmosphere, and that got people pretty excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, which the the funny timing I said was the movie timing is that was January fourteenth. On January 11th, the Tonga Geological Service said, this is now dormant. So, (laughs) I was reading that. What happened? Like, why would you... I mean, it had been erupting less than 20 days before that. Why would you make that call? Yeah, I mean, even with reduced size, you can't just say, well, we haven't seen any seismic activity. We think it's done. That's great. The word dormant means something very different. Exactly. Like, that's, yeah, that one's lay it to rest. Don't worry about it for quite a while, if not generations. So I don't understand what happened there. Yeah, so they they made the statement. Three days later, boom, uh, we get a cloud of ash. 20 kilometers, 12 miles up into the atmosphere. And everybody said, wow, that was, that was quite the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the next day, the 15th of January, at about 4.14 UTC, there was an eruption where the column of ash rose to 55 kilometers, or 34 miles. And this is way into the stratosphere. Oh, yeah. Way into the stratosphere, because the troposphere is like 10 kilometers, roughly. So that's big. And this was heard in Alaska. Almost antipodal. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this is what I... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you look at that. Unbelievable. Actually, a former guest of the show, uh, Dr. Casey Adderhold, heard it in Alaska oh my gosh, in the early really? morning hours. Yeah. <gasps> wow. And we're not talking about like seismic herd. We're talking about or orally herd. Like woke up at three in the morning because snow fell off the roof from the pressure wave herd. Unbelievable. Now it was heard very loudly, you know, all around that region. Uh, mm-hmm. More of the explosion sounds. You know, Samoa, it's not quite a thousand kilometers away. Fiji, uh, shaking buildings, that kind of thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's see, 2,000 kilometers away in New Zealand. Uh, So the sound took, what, two hours? Something like that to get there. That's unbelievable. And then 6,000 miles or 9,700 kilometers away, (laughs) there were low-frequency sounds lasting nearly 30 minutes. That's more, almost one and a half times the radius of the Earth. Almost one and a half times. Actually, it's almost exactly one and a half times. So it's amazing how mm-hmm. energetic. And this is one of the weird things about this that we're still not sure about is why the atmospheric and oceanic coupling was so good. Yeah. And you can oh, you can see this in those satellite images of this. But there's lots of weird things about this eruption 
So just like you said, you know, glad we waited to talk about it. But my guess is we're going to be talking about it again later, just because there are so many sort of different things. Um, One of the things that I talk about over and over again is that volcanoes change climate. They change it on a short term and a long term, right? They change it in the short term. They cool climate because of all the particulates they send up. And then on the long term, it warms up climate because of all the gross greenhouse gases they're spewing out, CO2, SO2, all that. But the sulfur content of this volcano was very low. And it did cool down things by half a degree C um, just for a little while. But it said that, you know, for how like energetic it was in comparison to the 91 Pinatubo eruption that ejected 20 million tons of SO2. But this Tonga volcano was only 400,000 tons of SO2. So that's kind of an interesting thing that you wouldn't expect. You would expect much more than that, especially the amount that it was spewing out anyway. So, hmm. Yeah, so I mean, half a million tons is a lot, but it's... Correct. Still, you know, it's a 40th. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Pinatubo had climate climate um, effects for a couple of years, so maybe this didn't. But that's just sort of an interesting thing to note. The chemistry of this maybe was a little bit different than we would have expected. Right. And I love this quote uh, from an article in Nature from a GNS science officer, so from New Zealand's uh, equivalent of the USGS, basically, I said, it basically just rips the Band-Aid on our lack of understanding of what's happening underwater. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. Um, This is a word that I never forgot, and we went on a field trip in our Igneous class as an undergrad, and we went to this place and we're looking at in New Mexico. So these are recent volcanics, but not currently active. And our professor talked about magmatophreatic explosions. And I thought that was like the coolest word ever. (laughs) Sounds like a superhero. (laughs) It does. (laughs) But basically it's when, you know, magma gets in contact with water. It's like super explosive. And so like the depth of water and the magma interaction here was something that caused it to be super explosive as well, was that magmatophreatic reaction. Yeah, and you know, the if you're deep, then you don't really see that surface expression. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they're saying this was tens of meters to maybe 250 meters deep. Mm Mm-hmm. So I know it sounds like enough. a big range, but that's pretty shallow. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. So shallow enough that you could have had a really good magma water interaction that just makes it even more volatile as you essentially you know, create steam and big explosions. Well, especially when you realize that this volcano, this mountain, rises two kilometers from the seafloor. This always never ceases to amaze me. (laughs) We're very impressed at Everest, which is 29,029 feet. I'm so sorry to do that in English units, but (laughs) that's our (laughs) right. And then Kilauea in 
Hawaii from the seafloor is like 35,000 feet or something like that. Immensely taller. <laughs> and it doesn't yeah, so have I mean, any tectonics to help boost it up there. <laughs> Everest is, yeah, so nine kilometers round numbers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is only two, but this That's is a, a small lot. underwater volcano. Mm-hmm. And it's still huge. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry. I said Kilauea. I meant Mauna Loa. Kilauea is uh, okay. not that big. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. It, two kilometers is, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. And, you know, there were some ideas that maybe an eruption, or one of the early eruptions opened up a cavity and water started flooding into this cavity. And that's what precipitated the large eruption on the 15th. Oh. I liked that idea. I Mm -hmm. think it's pure speculation, probably. Yeah, but it doesn't sound, you know, doesn't sound too off the wall. Right. Um, There's some evidence geologically for large explosive eruptions here before. Uh, Some of them going back to like 200 AD. Okay. And there's been some recent activity here you know, in the 30s and the late 80s mm-hmm. but nothing near like this in recorded history in fact nothing like this in modern this is the first eruption of this magnitude that we've had things like geostationary satellites to observe oh yeah that's true and observe they did because you can watch these pictures forever it's very interesting my favorite one, so there is the nice, the Himawari image of an up close of the eruption. But my mm-hmm. favorite one is an animation over hours and hours of the water vapor full disc image from Goes. Oh. So you get the whole Earth disc, and in water vapor, you can watch this gravity wave travel around the Earth, cross, and come back around again. That's I don't have anything to say to that besides that was so amazing. And different places on Earth. So, you know, we recorded this as uh, infrasound and we recorded this many ways that we'll get to. Uh, It was observed to go around the Earth several times. Uh, You know, two, three, four times in some locations it could have been observed. That's so cool. And the interactions, man, how many theses are going to be done about the atmospheric interactions of this? Yeah, because well, what's really crazy is looking at the infrasound. So, okay, yeah, infrasound, we know it's going to be big. It's a big boom. I've talked on it, about infrasound on here before. I've recorded mm-hmm. big booms from meteors and things. These were like Pascal several pascal variations so in europe two or no sorry hectopascal so in europe 2.5 hectopascal <laughs> in new zealand seven hectopascal that's significant that's a storm yes <laughs> uh let's see so yeah the shock waves Atmospheric shockwave crossed a recording station in Japan four times. <laughs> uh, was recorded twice in Massachusetts. 
uh, four times in Utah. Yeah, so this, like, these waves were very, very, very energetic. Uh, also, we were able to get data on the lightning activity from both radio and space-based platforms, uh, showing us all the electrification around this phenomenon, too. Mm. I wonder if it triggered that atmospheric wave, like, turbidating perturbations that created storms later in that region. I would not be... Well, there was a cyclone just, I believe, southwest of the island when this That's happened right. as well. Mm-hmm. I bet there's a lot of... I would think there should be a lot of study that goes into that, too. Hmm. Well, especially considering, you know, we always talk about, well, the only way to blow a hurricane apart would be yep. like the energy of several nuclear weapons. Well, here you go. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was hundreds right there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, that picture was unbelievable. And I would hope that that, like, coupling could do something for modelers in so far as, like, understanding the coupling mechanisms. Because I know that's always the hardest thing is trying to you know, couple the surface to the atmosphere. Oh, yeah. So Well, because you think about the contrast, it's it's huge. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the property contrast between air and soil or rock, it, it's massive. So you're going to get very sensitive to small variations in these properties. So you're going to really change what the model does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how long did you say it took to hear hear it, you know, across the across the world? Yeah, hours. Mm-hmm. I, I think when the meteorite exploded in Russia, I want to say it took 13 hours to get to me in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, but this also, of course, caused a tsunami because it's a big boom in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I did not know until I was researching this show is how rare volcanic tsunamis are. I wouldn't have thought that at all. Like, yeah, I, so... I don't understand why they wouldn't be, because I guess, you know, you're changing the ocean floor, so why wouldn't you get one, but... Maybe it's always too deep. Oh, Or okay. generally too deep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, so we all know that earthquakes can cause tsunamis. Right. It says that in the last 200 years, we've recorded fewer than 100 volcanic tsunamis. I just, that seems odd. How, with how many volcanic island arcs we have, I am surprised at that. But I guess maybe those explosions aren't usually so violent. Yeah. That's probably it. And not so instantaneous as this one. I mean, it was declared dormant and then went off. Right. <laughs> so. Um, hmm. But of course, everybody jumped into action. You know, GNS, uh, the Tongan survey, uh, NOAA jumped into action. And of course, you can see this on all the buoy networks. Uh, as far as we know, there were three direct deaths as a result of this. That's an impressively low number. I mean, it's still terrible, but I can't imagine what that would be without all the buoy networks and tsunami warning systems that are in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's see. The west coast of Tonga Tapu has estimated 49 feet. Huh. Mm-hmm. That would be a problem. 
Yes. Uh, Fiji was only 7.9 inches, but that did quite a bit of low-level flooding. Yes, considering most of Fiji isn't probably much more than that, right? Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, um, Vanuatu, you know, eight feet. It's significant. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, the, like, ty- uh, the effects of elevation of the land on on how big these tsunamis are and how it affects them, you know, because I bet a lot of these two-foot waves weren't that big a deal, but then, you know, one that's just eight inches in Fiji caused a lot of problems. Yeah, and I mean, even Hawaii. Uh, let's see. Uh, Hanalei, Hawaii, two feet, seven inches. Mm-hmm. I mean, two of the people killed from the tsunami were in Peru, yeah. where it was six foot. So, mm-hmm. and we had four foot waves in the U.S. in California. And what really blows my mind is if you were to see that. Well, one, it would be very anticlimactic. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. But that is energy that traveled from the other side of yeah. the world, from magma hitting water. Uh huh all the way to you and that bloop on the shore is that energy magma like, that's water. just crazy not a huge amount of land like rushing into the ocean in an earthquake not that yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's it it's so you know it's so true it takes a natural disaster to get everyone like riled up about this stuff but i mean and the deaths are horrible it's horrible that anyone had to die from this but it's really amazing to see you know like i said these warning signs that we have in place to help protect people but just like the science play out like this is why we have this warnings here because look you can see this all over the world from this tiny island well and especially you know imagine if you didn't know, if we didn't have a way to know that this had happened, if we didn't have satellites, if we didn't have seismometers, if we were back 200 years in our communications capabilities, and the water level just suddenly rose four, six, eight feet. Yeah. Wouldn't you go, I wonder what happened? Mm-hmm. And somebody would say, I guess we'll never know. And you'd say, yeah, I guess we never know. Yeah. We know. Say, exactly. They'd say, I guess we never know. And then they come up with a story about it. Mm-hmm. And they tell the story over and over again. But now you can tie it to directly to the event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this also had a really cool interaction that I have never heard of. So I've thought about air pressure and earthquakes a decent amount. <laughs> yes. When everything was going on in Oklahoma, I remember doing a bunch of calculations saying like, well, a really strong front would be like putting a 50-pound sack of feed on every square meter. <laughs> um. Mm-hmm. But there are these things, meteo tsunamis. I think that you just wanted to talk about this to say that word. <laughs> yeah, so tsunamis normally, yeah, like we just said, they're earthquakes, maybe volcanic. Uh, but these are driven by air pressure. I mean, it makes sense. Air acts as a fluid, right? Yeah, it's just like any two fluids at a boundary and if you've got a localized low air pressure 
and higher mm-hmm. air pressure around it, it's going to drive that fluid up into that low air pressure well. Uh-huh. Exactly. And where do you have these localized things, like fronts? Mm-hmm. Uh, it says that medio tsunamis, so these are tsunamis that have been driven by the weather, have been observed to reach over six feet. How high was this Tonga wave? I mean, it was many, many feet, depending on where you, how close you were. Right, yeah. But the, one of the questions that they're curious about now is how much did the large amplitude displacement on the water drive atmospheric phenomena? Mm. Because one of the theories of why this was such a long-traveling, persistent thing was that they reinforced each other. Harmonic convergence. Cool. So the, the atmospheric wave, or the gravity wave, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, and the fluid wave were able to travel together, propagating because it, it would propagate further if you had that, that contrast happening. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, that's really cool. Really cool. Meteo tsunami. I can't wait to teach about this now. <laughs> well, and then, you know, it, it's closely related to the, the Seish, but we'll have to talk about that in another show. <laughs> that I had to ask you how to pronounce. Uh-huh. And that's just a standing wave, but meteo tsunamis are clearly moving, just like regular tsunamis. So. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what tsunami means. I asked this on, a, on an exam but I don't remember. Hmm. I'm going to have to look this up. Harbor wave. There we go. Harbor wave. Harbor wave. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So, makes sense. <laughs> yeah. That comes from a long time ago where you have an earthquake somewhere, and then all of a sudden you've got this wave that shows up because the earthquake was, you know, thousands of miles away. And you're like, huh. That's an interesting wave. And you move on. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, sometime we'll have to talk about how you get these long wavelength, low amplitude waves out in the deep ocean. And then as they start approaching shore, oh, yeah. They slow down. So they bunch up, start they... piling up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is very interesting. I did a report on, um, on, the associated, you know, with hurricanes when you get the surges, the storm surge. And I always thought that was really cool. I mean, it's not cool. It's terrible. But it was interesting physics of how you pile up that water to make these huge walls that come in. Right. So, yeah. Yep. Definitely something to talk about soon. But group velocity and phase velocity are not in the cards for this episode. <laughs> Thank goodness, because it's way too late in the day to talk about that. (laughs) Right. But we are going to talk about looking for small waves of another kind in everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. I didn't even realize that you'd done this. I didn't realize that this was an all-wave show. I mean, everything's a wave, really, right? (laughs) Everything's a wave. It's powered by the sun, volcanoes. Yeah. Our standard answers. Make the joke every time. Heat and gravity. Just start at first principles and derive every answer to the test from there. (laughs) I mean, pretty much. 
I've yet to have it happen in eight years. I'm very disappointed, but maybe someday a geophysicist will <laughs> will impress me. <laughs> it's true. Someday you'll get a student that wants to do some science. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And he'll be like, here you go. Yeah. I'll, I'll say the answer to this was five, but that's okay. I appreciate that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> So you're taking us to an entirely different planet with no more water on the surface to talk about tiny waves that no one can hear. Well, and actually, listener Daryl is taking us there. Of course he is. I'm sorry. <laughs> third third co-host, Daryl. <laughs> right. So this is Questions to Heaven by <laughs> Fernando and colleagues. Um, have you read anything from astronomy and geophysics? I had not, and now I am very interested in this journal. Me too. I got super excited before I even read this article that there was an astronomy and geophysics journal that's been around a while. So, yeah, that's a lot of back reading, and I have a feeling we're going to have many more fun papers come out right. of this. <laughs> As each of us says, oh, look at this one. So cool. <laughs> um, so... We're going tomorrow to Mars, and as you pointed out when you sent this to me, this is a really good example of a a null, um, <laughs> you know, a null outcome. Like they expected this thing and it didn't happen. And we always talk about the Journal of Null Results, which doesn't exist, but it probably should, so people can learn from other people's mistakes or other people's thinking. It'd be very useful to do. It'd probably have a billion um, submissions a week. But right. this one's really important because it's a very expensive null result that we should take a look at. Yeah. So the idea here was we've looked seismically at things on other planets for a while now. We know a lot about moon quakes. Uh, we know a little about Mars quakes, but there's still a lot of weird things about Mars quakes that we don't understand. Right. And in the Apollo days, we would take the the lunar module and part of the S4B assembly and crash them into the moon as an active seismic source. Seems like a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, you're going to just have this piece of space junk out there anyway. You might as well get mm -hmm. some advantage from that Delta V mm -hmm. exactly. and crash it in. So that's what they did. Uh, they decided to look at Mars and see if we could use the InSight seismometer to detect the EDL phase, so that's entry, descent, and landing of spacecraft landing on Mars. Because Mars is becoming quite the destination to send spacecraft to if you're a developing country. <laughs> what was neat about this and what I never thought about is the fact that, you know, when things enter our atmosphere, we have such a great monitoring system that we know where and when it happens almost instantaneously. But there's no monitoring. Well, there are few monitoring systems so if you do this on say mars it's not as easy as knowing when you can pick things up with seismic you know because there's all these delays in communications and there just aren't a thousand satellites like we've just been talking about monitoring this tonga volcano 
Yeah, well, an insight, you know, its its solar panels over the years have gotten pretty dusty. As one uh, we, does in Mars. <laughs> as one does in Mars. We can't run all the instruments all the time now. Mm-hmm. So the instrument uh, workload, the payload, is planned in two-week chunks. And because to communicate with InSight, we have to write the communications packet, wait for the right time to send it through the Deep Space Network to a relay satellite orbiting Mars, then it has to wait until the right time in its orbit of Mars where it can see InSight and relay the packet. And then it gets the reply from InSight. It waits until it can see the Deep Space Network, and we ask it for the packet. That's a lot. We can't just talk. Yeah. (laughs) We can't just talk to it. (laughs) And given the limited power, they really had to do some work. And this was actually the primary science goal for InSight for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Because one of these Chinese missions that was landing, they actually, if the mission was just going straight from Earth into Mars, uh, they would know when to turn the seismometer on. But here, this lander actually went into orbit while they were able to determine exactly where they wanted to land, do a little bit of landing site selection, and then deorbit. Which was good for that mission, but bad for us because we didn't have that exact timing and couldn't tell it right away, hey, we need you to listen to then. And so this is also a point of the of the article, and this is the Tianwen was is questions to heaven in Chinese, um, is that there had to be a lot of interagency cooperation to make sure all of the timing once decided got relayed so we could then relay it to Insight. And like you had said, this was its primary science mission for a while. So a lot of that had to, um, a lot of that communication needed to take place so everyone would be successful. Right, and what they ended up doing is saying, well, okay, we know that they're going to target landing in this area, and we know that they can only deorbit for these few hours any given soul to hit that area. So we're mm-hmm. going to turn on in that time span and stay on for so many hours afterwards. And you know, they powered up some infrasound sensors and wind speed and the seismometer. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what I thought was cool is, yeah, they, they figured all this out ahead of time and planned it for two weeks, and the the mm-hmm. timing actually worked out perfect. Yes. Uh, another thing that I didn't think about was the noisiness of the different times of the soul, though. I hadn't thought that would be a thing. Yeah, so Martian afternoons, real noisy, seismically. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Martian evening is a little quieter, seismically. And, of course, this event happened during the Martian afternoon. So seismically, it was quite noisy, but the sound waves were going to take so long to get there from the EDL phase of this mission that it was Martian evening when the sound waves got there, so they had a much better chance of seeing this on the atmospheric pressure sensors. This is such a great compliment to the show we just did. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> unfortunately, they, they didn't see it in anything. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, and... they will get to try it again, probably, mm-hmm. if insight persists for a little while longer. Now, I think one of the reasons that this happened, though, is because this Tianwen probe did go into orbit first, 
So if you're coming in from, uh, so you're in a trans-Mars flight path. Uh, so you were orbiting Earth, you, you fired, you had your trans-Mars injection, and then you just go straight to landing on Mars. You're mm-hmm. burning off an incredible amount of speed. You're making a lot of noise as your arrow breaking in the atmosphere, and you're coming down fast. <laughs> <laughs> so you're noisier when you're coming in hot versus when you've right. been chilling out, you know, just orbiting for a while and then decide to come in. Yeah, but if you park in orbit, you did all that Delta V way before mm-hmm. you got to Mars. Yep. You burned a bunch of fuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, they, they came in with a lot less energy. So a lot less energy went out into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we do see this where if you get a sonic boom in Earth's atmosphere... When that pressure wave hits the surface, it creates a seismic wave that then travels at the surface wave velocity. Right. Uh, we've seen that. I've written stuff on my blog about that from meteorite impacts that were air air explosions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was one of the things they were a little more hopeful for here. But again, they just it's not there in the data. Yep. And I did appreciate this is one paper where seismologists didn't look at pure noise and go, if you squint in the spectrogram, Uh, (laughs) you uh, can see uh, this. uh, 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 uh. Yes, I absolutely agree. This is very, it's a very cool thing to pass along, though, too, because so frequently we talk about. You know, it's very important when you fail at your hypothesis, and they had a hypothesis that they would see this, and, you know, maybe the timing wasn't perfect, um, and they didn't see it. And so you should say that. We didn't see it. This is why. This is what we'll do next time, you know. So. Yeah. And I hope that Insight keeps uh, running for a while so we can get another chance at this with another probe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Maybe somebody can go over there and dust him off. <laughs> it's yeah, I mean, get, it's getting we can always, busy down there. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> can always hope for a good windstorm. Exactly, exactly. Maybe get a big atmospheric meteor tsunami come by. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have ideas on how to dust off insight, uh, <laughs> or on exactly what caused the. Tonga eruption. We would love to hear those. Shannon, how can folks send in their research? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. You can drop that in the Slack chat room. Sometimes we're on there, the Don't Panic channel of the Software Underground. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You can support us too. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.